People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Rodney Trudgeon here, welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. A slightly different program this evening as regards venue, because I recorded this program when I was in Berlin recently, just before a concert with the Berlin Philharmonic under their conductor-designate Kirill Patrenko. And the point of the interview was to discuss the Berlin Digital Concert Hall, a very comprehensive arrangement of endless videos, concerts, interviews, and so on. And I was lucky enough to get an interview with the senior sound engineer, Christoph Franke. So do join us in the control room. I'm actually in one of the booths at the Berlin Philharmonic, up in the gods, they might say, um, ahead of the concert that's going to be presented tonight by the Berlin Philharmonic under their conductor-designate, Kirill Patrenko, the Schoenberg Violin Concerto and Tchaikovsky Symphony No. 5. And one of the interesting things is that tonight's concert is going to be broadcast, well, worldwide, really, on the Digital Concert Hall, the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall. And with me is Christoph Franke, who is very much in charge of the concert hall as well as the production of the Berlin Philharmonic's own CD label. But I'd like to, Christoph, first of all, thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd like to find out, first of all, um, just how did the digital concert hall begin? What was the reason for setting up something as really as complicated and as magnificent as this? Well, it started more than 10 years ago. We just had our anniversary for 10 years of the Digital Concert Hall, but of course there had to be some planning beforehand. And it was about in 2006, I would say, when the orchestra decided that it would be important and necessary to move into the new millennium, media-wise. And um, so with a, together with a couple of friends. There was a connection between um, members of the orchestra and some outside people who were experienced in the media field. And those people sat together. I was part of it. And we thought, what can we do to really do something new with this orchestra? And that was the time when YouTube was around and we thought, okay, let's try something cool. We make some YouTube videos and the orchestra and all that. But it took only, I don't know, three talks and we realized that's not what works with the orchestra. The orchestra uh, has been always uh, at the forefront of technological developments. And so actually to match um, what the orchestra is doing musically, the technology also would have to be absolutely top notch. And so we decided, well, let's just try and set up something which transmits every concert of the orchestra in the best possible quality, actually a quality which wasn't commonplace back then yet in HD via the internet and also with an audio quality of course which had to be the best for this kind of orchestra and um, so we, we made a concept and um, realized that will require quite a lot of money and one of the most important steps was to find a partner who would support that. And that partner back then was the Deutsche Bank, which is a long-time partner of the Berliner Philharmonica. And they realized from the Deutsche Bank, this is a fantastic project because it will make it possible to bring classical music to 
many more people than than uh, when you can just go to a concert hall and so they decided to support that project and give us the necessary money to set up the studio to do all the concept planning and all that that was the first important step the second important step was to convince the orchestra because the orchestra back then knew YouTube as something where you can see big failures of people and of course a musician is afraid of being shown and being heard when the horn cracks or when an entrance doesn't work. This is one of the questions I was going to ask you Christoph because I wondered how the musicians would react to that because if you think about it every musician in the orchestra is on camera at every concert whether it's their hairstyle whether they yawn whether they blink whether they crack a note have you ever had problems with them saying, look, no, we're not prepared to do this? Clearly not. I mean, it was a long process. When we started the whole thing, we didn't go live. Uh, it was just a recording. And then we played the recordings to the orchestra. And we also worked very closely with the orchestra um, just to build up a certain amount of trust from the orchestra. That was also part of my role as a as a tonmeister. That's that's my profession. I have done uh, CD productions, numerous CD productions, and so that they would know whatever goes out there in the archive of the digital concert hall would be that no one would could be ashamed of it. Right. And you'd edit yeah. out problems. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. Um, and but life is life. I mean, like in a in a concert, life is life. Of course, we can't change anything there. Um, but but for the archive, it was important that uh, they that they would feel safe and also that no one would be shown during the concert when he doesn't play, he or she doesn't play. And it was very important for the orchestra to have no additional light on stage because that means more heat, more sweating. Um, they didn't want to have any camera operators on stage because that's distracting, it produces noise. So our job was to design a system which is as invisible as possible, as quiet as possible and not noticeable at all. And that led, of course, to the use of robotic cameras. The shape of the stage in the Philharmonie is ideal for that because we can create a circle of cameras around the orchestra mm. because it's this concert hall concept where the stage is in the center of the audience. And you know, I have to say, Christopher, I agree with you. It took me a while before I realized there were cameras up there because they're, all like, they're also quite small, aren't they? They move imperceptibly, so it's not distracting for anyone, the audience or the musicians. Yes, um, we, we had to do quite a bit of research to find the right cameras, but uh, I also must say, even if I'm sitting in the, in the hall um, from time to time and I just look at the cameras and I think, oh no, let's wait until I see them moving, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I never manage. So I think even for, then for a normal audience, it, it won't be noticeable. And apart from the uh, orchestral musicians, what about the conductors and soloists? Obviously, you have to tell, it's got to be cleared with the conductor and soloists that this can be filmed and, for example, go out live or into the archives. So they've also obviously been very agreeable and compliant. Yes, in the first year, it was kind of an experimental phase where we personally talked to all the conductors and the soloists and, and of course lots of talks uh, with the orchestra um, but 
actually everyone was very open to it. It was uh, quite amazing how uh, how the musicians and the conductors reacted. They also felt, oh, well, this is something which, which opens up new audiences, and so they were quite open. And after that, of course, after this experimental phase, we felt the need to um, put it into some kind of formal thing. And so now it it is part of the contract. Um, if a um, soloist plays here, he signs that contract um, and it's fine and no one no one's ever complained they love it actually okay <laughs> Christopher I think let's take a music break and I'm going to use in the course of the program the recordings that come from the Berlin Philharmonic label and I was lucky enough to be here during the Beethoven cycle so how about the first movement of Beethoven 5 with Simon Rattle just give us a feel of the sound that you're getting from this marvelous studio we're in do you agree? I do agree. I mean, doing that recording, uh, I, luckily I was involved in it. it. It was a very special moment to hear these, not only the first bars, but the whole symphony in that way. Uh, Simon Rettel does it because it's it's so fresh and so energized. And, and to capture that energy in, into a recording uh, was a challenge on one hand, but, but also a big joy on the other. <laughs> Thank you. 
the first movement of Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor, Opus 67, recorded and performed here in the Philharmonie in Berlin, with the Berliner Philharmonic conducted by Sir Simon Rattle, and released on the label of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, their private label, and also it's in the Digital Concert Hall. And I'm talking to Christoph Franke, who is, I think, just to be easy, Christoph, I'm going to say you're in charge of everything <laughs> to do with the Digital Concert Hall and of the CDs. But what, since we've just played a CD, can I just talk about that briefly? Because these recordings do come out on CD, but they are also available in the Concert Hall. The same recording, isn't it? It is the same recording, but there is a difference uh, because the concerts you can see in the Digital Concert Hall are video recordings, which means it usually is the third evening of three evenings, and it means there is only very little polishing, let's say, uh, done because for a video, the perception is different. You you see the picture, you're dis distracted by the picture, and also whatever is happening yeah it's different to an audio recording for a cd recording we all um expect a certain quality um in the recording which requires um a lot more editing actually um and in a cd recording because you're not tied to the linearity of that concert performance um you can combine more of the three evenings so if the conductor feels that on the second evening the slow movement was so much better than on the third evening then of course we take it from the second evening and if it's if it was the best uh, the last movement uh, best in the third recording then we take that and that even applies to sometimes certain passages or solos from the horn if the horn player feels that horn solo was uh, the best in the first evening then we take that so a cd recording um is is a different yeah how would you say it's uh, the creme de la creme actually if you think about it exactly uh, you said interestingly just now christoph that you can get distracted by a picture as wonderful as those blu-ray dvds are you can get distracted by a person their expression or something if you're listening to the cd your concentration is absolutely on the music and indeed the sound isn't it absolutely and um, so the sound um, I, I must say though um, is uh, concerning the the balance and the mix is the same between the digital concert hall um, audio which you hear there and uh, then on the CD recording it is basically the same we, we we do a slightly different mix for the CD but but from the concept it's the same and there is uh, a, a lot more using of the possibilities you have nowadays of uh, removing horrible noises from cuffing audience and 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 hearing aids and and whatever kind of noise there is uh, because you don't want to be distracted in a CD recording. You want to really listen to the music. I want to just stay with the label, the CD, just for the moment. We'll get back to the digital concert hall in a moment. But um, you, you've got um, this very special and interesting layout, the way you produce them in a sort of book form, which some people say it's very awkward to fit on CD shelves. But I like it because it looks so different. How did you come up with a design like that? I like it very much for the record. I like it too, um, even though I didn't create it. Um, the box is actually a creation of one of our two managers of our company, Berlin Film Media, uh, Olaf Maninger, who is also at the same time solo cellist in the Berliner Philharmonica. And it was his idea to 
and his strong will also to create something which is clearly distinguishable from the normal, rather simple, cheap plastic uh, CD format, because we wanted to create something which really shows that this is something very special. And um, it's not only the, the format, it's also the, the design using usually art and not the, the usual faces or of, of soloists or conductors. Not carry on on the cover as happened all those years. Remember on the DG label, every single one. Exactly, exactly. No, we, we wanted to avoid that. But of course, the idea also behind it, which I think is, is pretty clever, um, I notice it myself at home, uh, these boxes stand out. They do. They <laughs> in, both do. in both <laughs> meanings of the word. Yes, exactly. But this is great because you have them on a separate place and you see them and they are so beautiful that it's just nice to see them, you know? It's, it's not this plastic stuff, but you put them there like a, like a beautiful book and you see it and you think, oh yes, oh the Beethoven Symphony, I should listen to number seven again, you know? <laughs> and, and I think that's a, it's a very clever but also very nice No, idea. they're very beautifully put together and they stand out as you say. But um, the other thing, just briefly talking about the label, I see that you've also, not kowtowing, but you've public tastes with vinyl. A lot of your stuff is being issued on vinyl. And is that commercially viable? It is, absolutely. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a large number of people out there who are just keen to get these recordings on vinyl. Um, and it started, actually, when we did a very special project, which was really pure vinyl, when we did a direct-to-disc recording, where we recorded um, four Brahms symphonies via two microphones straight onto a disc cutting machine and uh, then printed uh, the vinyls from that cutting master and um, when we did that the people went wild it was sold out within a couple of weeks the whole edition and we thought okay if, if, if the people want it and if, if they love that sound um, we give it to them and we have a very very experienced um, specialist here uh, 400 meters away from the Philharmonie who has specialized in vinyl cutting and so we use his expertise and um, I think it's a it's a fantastic format and I know you're going to say yes but nonetheless I'll ask you is the quality on the vinyl as good as on the CD regarding dynamic range remember the old days of inner groove distortion and things like that. I suppose that's so far in the past. These days, is a vinyl recording the same as a CD recording? I would say technically not, of course, but uh, subjectively, if you're listening to it, and of course we have done that quite often and also making direct comparisons, it is actually amazing to hear a vinyl again and realizing how good the quality can be. Mm. Apart from the crackle noises which are there I mean undoubtedly however good the pressing is. Some people like that as Exactly and, and I mean psychoacoustically that is also something which uh, which can be just nice because it stimulates the ear so it is something whether you like it or not but it's there and, and, and some people just love it so much that they prefer it. Alright well let's pause at the moment and listen to another CD I have to say, not vinyl. This also on the BPO label which is the second movement of the Symphony Number no. 2 by Robert Schumann Thank you. 
The second movement of the Symphony Number no. 2 by Schumann, giving the strings a run for their money there, with Simon Rattle conducting the Berlin Philharmonic. And on People of Note this week, I'm in Berlin in the Digital Concert Hall at the Philharmonie and talking to Christoph Franke, who is in charge of everything. <laughs> we were speaking about vinyl. I'd like to go back to the Digital Concert Hall because one of the things I'm wondering, what is the subscription rate like? Have you got people from all over the world? Have you an idea how many subscribers you have, how big it is? Of course, we have a very clear idea. Um, that's actually one of the big pluses we have by having set up the digital concert hall that we know our customers so well. Um, and we know that um, it is a global product, definitely. And um, the biggest part is obviously in Germany, but uh, there is a large part in Japan and in the US and in Great Britain. But um, actually we have customers from, I think, 152 countries or something. I mean, there's, there's from every country. Uh, Including in South Africa, may I say. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And we can even um, look on a map when there's a live stream and we can see how many um, live streams go into which country. And uh, so that is very nice during a concert to see, oh, there's uh, somewhere, uh, someone back there in, uh, you know, whatever, in Alaska. In Cape Town. Yeah. Oh, even. In, I mean, Cape Town. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ta uh, Cape Town is the same time zone. But yes. uh, to, to see how many people from Japan are watching the Digital Concert Hall live when it's four o'clock in the morning, that is quite amazing. So um, That's devotion for you and interest. Absolutely, absolutely. But you were asking about the, the number of subscriptions and um, because we have different uh, ticket models, uh, the easiest is to say that at a given moment we have about 35,000 um, ticket holders who can watch the digital concert hall with a valid uh, ticket. And we have about 300,000 people who receive the newsletter, which we send out every week. And um, that's, that's about the number, um, the, the dimensions mm -hmm. we work with. That's very substantial. And as you were saying earlier, when it was set up and you spoke about YouTube and all that, obviously you had the whole idea of social media at the back of your minds as well. Because these days people are downloading things, they're going to Twitter, they're going to Facebook. And I presume you also want to be on top of that. Absolutely. Um, we started very early with um, a YouTube channel, um, but also very early with um, building up our Facebook community and uh, also then uh, the, the, the other social medias. But I would say that those two are the, the biggest ones, uh, YouTube and Facebook. And f with Facebook, um, how long ago was it that we reached one million friends? So that uh, was the uh, largest number for a classical music institution um, and so we're quite proud of that and we have a very active social media team who uh, really is, 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 is giving little excerpts into the channel so that people can see what's going on and we ask our conductors and solos to send out a little Facebook message uh, to invite the people to the live transmission and that is just a beautiful way of the orchestra indirectly interacting with the global audience. Mm, absolutely. One of the things I find interesting in the Digital Concert Hall is the interviews you do, like with the conductors and solos who come by and others, and you use orchestra members. I think that's such a good idea, and they do so well. I mean, I thought interviewing was a professional broadcaster's job, but they do so well, and obviously they enjoy it, as do the guests. 
Yes, I mean this this idea was actually born out of of, of a necessity that uh, it would have been difficult to get a proper journalist every time because we do these uh, recordings quite spontaneously, and so we thought, well, actually, this orchestra is just a collection of such strong characters. Uh, nearly every one of them is able to stand just by him or herself on stage and do something. Why don't we ask these orchestra members who can talk to other musicians on a different level? Because they sometimes get out other things from a conductor or, or a soloist because they feel, oh, they ask me question, you know, out of my profession and they know what I'm talking about. And so this, this uh, idea of uh, intimacy um, works, I think, quite well with the interviews. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing about the digital console that I find so amazing is the number of films and documentaries you have. Um, you've obviously taken old ones as well and rejigged them and made them digitally acceptable, but you have films going back to Karyan's days and further back and constant new material. And this must also be a huge challenge, the film side as well. Yes, um, partly uh, it really means producing new films, uh, like this uh, small series of portraits of musicians. If you think that we have 128 musicians, you can imagine that it would take quite a while to uh, produce a portrait for everyone, but by now I think we have at least um, 10 portraits, um, which is very nice. And we keep producing these uh, this, this uh, small format, um, but also, these uh, larger format films um, we just license from, from other production companies if we think that is so interesting for our audience um, that it should be in, in our um, archive. Okay, I'm going to pause, Christopher, for another piece of music from the label, the BPO label. This time it's Sibelius, and I thought, let's hear the, the uh, sketch of the third movement of the Sibelius Symphony Number no. 1.
All the excitement of a very young Sibelius there, the third movement of the first symphony, and the Berlin Philharmonic there conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. And people of note this week coming to you from Berlin, where I'm talking to the head of everything to do with the digital console and the label, Christoph Funke. Christoph, um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you uh, about the digital console is its commercial viability. You mentioned, um, you know, that you've got a number, a huge, many more incidentally than I thought you had. And is it a commercially viable operation? It is. Um, since one or two years, it's commercially viable. 
But to be honest, of course, it would never have been possible to uh, set up something like that without uh, partners. I mentioned the Deutsche Bank for the beginning, which financed all the initial setup and also the technological advancement, uh, which we constantly have to change the technology every couple of years. That probably would not be possible just with the uh, with the money which comes in. Right. So we have our technological partners um, and our strongest partner at the moment is Panasonic. And with Panasonic, we made the move to 4K, which is four times the quality of HD. And uh, this is also a first um, to stream classical music via the internet in 4K resolution, which means um, 3840 times 2160 pixels <laughs> per frame, <laughs> if you want to know well it done. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that is quite a lot. And we also just recently have done the first test uh, transmissions of that kind of video quality combined with high quality audio, uncompressed audio, no data reduction of 96 kilohertz and 24 bits, which is eight times the quality of CD. So this is really a first where we really can say, now it's really so much better than what you could get on physical media. Yes. And that makes us actually very proud to come through this valley of data reduction and now being able to, off to offer the beautiful sound of the Berlin Phil in the in the best quality. And what's interesting, I think, Christoph, and worth considering, is that people would possibly listen on a laptop on a little speaker, but they still see the orchestra and hear what's going on. But if you are one of those uh, audiophiles, to have jolly good equipment would be very much advantageous, wouldn't it? Because what you would get in your home is the highest possible sound quality that's available at the moment on the internet. Do you agree? That's right. Um, we're streaming at uh, 320 kilobits per second in AAC, which is advanced audio coding. And uh, that is, I wouldn't say it's the best in the internet. There are streaming services who offer more, but not in combination with video. So mm -hmm. we, are, we are offering the best in combination with video. And what you should do is to uh, really attach a high-quality hi-fi system to either your laptop or your to your TV set. You can even use your smartphone and um, Chromecast it to some audio device or um, use Apple TV to stream it onto an Apple TV, and there are many other options. Um, so you always have the option to have the best digital quality and then really played back on your home hi-fi system. And just talking about sound like that, and just finally, because we're going to have to go because the concert's going to begin quite soon, I was interested that recently you've remastered a whole lot of Fort Wengler's recordings where we're dealing with sound that's not stereophonic. Was this a challenge? I'm looking forward to hearing it. I'm going to order it. Is it going to be worthwhile? It definitely is worthwhile. I was uh, heavily involved in that whole remastering process and it was uh, a tough task, I can tell you, but it was also incredibly exciting to work with these old recordings which we could transfer directly from the old tapes. We went here in Berlin into the studio and 
took the old tapes into our hands and put it on the tape machine and transferred it with the best available AD, DA converters. Um, and, and, and so that was amazing to start with. But then using the latest digital technology to get rid of all the technical artifacts which necessarily are on these old recordings, get let's say, reduce the distortions, uh, get the frequency response right, get uh, the, the wow and flutter uh, of, of the tapes right, noises which you can hear like beeping sounds and, and lots of other things. And you can handle that nowadays with digital tools so that you can completely remove them without actually touching the actual sound. And so what happens is that the music suddenly comes in the foreground. You don't hear an historic recording, but you hear the performance of, of Furtwängler with the Berlin Philharmonic, and you suddenly start listening really to the phrases and the musical flow and these amazing tempo changes Furtwängler does, yeah, you know, within, yeah. within a few bars, he doubles the <laughs> tempo, and you I think, know. how can a whole orchestra follow that one? I am very cross about that because I've been collecting all the Fortfinley recordings over the years on EMI and DG, uh, and they are obviously historic recordings, and I saw this, so I thought, damn, I'm going to, to listen to what you've done. So have you any idea what interest there is in that at the moment? Have you had lots of interest? We had lots of interest. Um, f interestingly enough, um, Japan is so much interested in the Furtwängler recordings. Uh, I mean, we, we sent a whole container to Japan, uh, also because the, the boxes are so big with uh, these with 22 CDs, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but still, um, I mean, large orders from, from Japan, but also in, in Germany, of course, and again, all over the world, uh, people are still so much interested in Furtwängler. And it's, it's actually interesting to see this connection to our new designated chief conductor, Kirill Petrenko, who also is so interested in the way Furtwängler conducted, and he was one of the first to receive uh, one of the Furtwängler editions once it was pressed, and uh, and in the box we gave him one set, and he, I, I think he probably locked himself in and listened to it <laughs> <laughs> for a week. I don't blame him. I'm a Furtwängler fan, so... I can't wait to hear it. Um, we have to go. The concert is about to begin. I'm sure you've got many things to do in the studio. So, Christoph Franke, thank you very much for enlightening us about this. I'm sure it will cause many South Africans to join. We'll certainly give them the information of how they can do that. But um, all the best. I look forward to your future editions of the Digital Concert Hall and to see what you come up with. And it was a pleasure to have you here, and I hope you're going to enjoy the concert here very much. Well, to end this program, Christoph, and you mentioned this earlier, how about the last movement of Beethoven 7 with uh, Rattle and the BPO? Do you that agree? That is a fantastic choice, yes, definitely. Thank you. My guest on People of Note this week was Christoph Franke. <laughs>
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.